In the name of uh, full disclosure, it's important that you know that while it might seem like uh, somebody could have wisely planned this sermon for Father's Day, um, that is not the case. Uh, I've been waiting, I've, I've been wanting to get to this message, but keep going, no, we've got to finish out Hebrews, I, I, I know we need to finish that. And this week as I'm preparing this and I'm creating what will end up being the opening illustration, I, I thought, boy, it'd really be cool if that had happened to fall on Father's Day. And then it dawned on me that it did. Um, <clears throat> but it is, uh, if you know me well, you'll know that A, I don't think about things like that, and B, if I did, I would definitely not do them because of that reason. So it's just better when they just happen that way. So uh, if you would open to Ephesians chapter 1, we are continuing in our series, Imagining the Kingdom. Um, we're, we're shifting metaphors from that of a journey, a race, a marathon, if you will, that we had in the book of Hebrews to the metaphor of adoption uh, that we have in the book of Ephesians, and we're going to be looking at that. So the subtitle for this message is Adopted by the Father into the Family. Adopted by the Father into the Family. In Ephesians chapter 1, <coughs> the first 14 verses will be our text. And, and actually, many of you probably know this, um, or at least some of you, that verses 3 through 14, the, the prayer or the praise that is given in verses 3 through 14, and the original text is one long sentence. So you talk about run-on sentences. Apparently nobody told Paul. Um, that, you know, it wasn't a thing back then. You could have them all you wanted, so you know. <clears throat> um, but if you would read with me beginning there in Ephesians 1 begin, or, and verse 1. <clears throat> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with His pleasure. And will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth, under or in Christ. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we, who were the first uh, to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do indeed give you praise, and it belongs to you, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because you have blessed us 
in the heavenly unseen realm, which controls all things that are seen with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For you chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in your sight. In love you predestined us for adoption to sonship. So Lord, we give you all honor, glory, and praise. And we ask that you would open our hearts and minds, our eyes and ears to hear, to understand, to see this truth revealed through this idea of adoption. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's a company called StoryCorps which goes from place to place and gives opportunities for people to tell their family stories. They, you record these stories in a, a booth of sorts, and um, <clears throat> they then take those after they finish the product and get it all edited and, and, and good. They send you a copy, and then they send a copy to the Library of Congress so that, you know, 300 years from now, your ancestors can hear uh, in the voice of their great-great-grandparents or whatever this story that is being told. Kimberly Weaver wanted to have her father, a renowned surgeon, uh, speak about his life and the impact that his father, her grandfather, had on him. And so I want you to hear that story. If we could go ahead and play that. My father was everything to me. And it's actually kind of difficult talking about him without becoming very emotional. Up until, you know, he died. Every decision I made, I'd always call him. And he would never tell me what to do, but he would always listen and say, well, what do you want to do? And he made me feel that I could do anything that I wanted to do. I can remember when we integrated the schools that there were many times when I was just scared. And I didn't think that I would survive. And I'd look up and he'd be there. And whenever I saw him, I knew that I was safe. You know, I always tell you that your your mama is the smartest person I've ever met. But I think my father ranks right up there as, as brilliant. When I was in high school, I was taking algebra, and I was sitting at the kitchen table trying to do my homework. And I got frustrated and said, I just can't figure this out. I'm just – so my father said, what's the problem? He came by. He said, what's the problem? And I said, that's just algebra. And he said, well, let me look at it. I said, Dad, they didn't even have algebra in your day. <laughs> And I went to sleep. And around 4 o'clock that morning, he woke me up. He said, come on, son, get up. He set me at the kitchen table, and he taught me algebra. What he had done is sit up all night and read the algebra book. And then he explained the problems to me so I could do them and understand them. <laughs> and to this day, I live my life trying to be half the man my father was. Just half the man. And... uh I would be a success if my children loved me half as much as I loved my father. William Lynn Weaver, that was his voice. Um, and you can, I put the link in the notes so you can go watch that again, um, see his picture while he's talking. But um, uh, his father, Ted, he stays up all night for the sake of his son to learn algebra that he might help his son. And the point isn't that he learned algebra. I mean, that's one thing, sure. It's about the character that motivates that pursuit to serve his son. Owning his responsibility as a father, seeking to be half the man that his father was, Lynn became a renowned surgeon. Not everyone has an earthly father like that. 
In fact, some earthly fathers are downright evil. Some leave a legacy we'd like to flee rather than embrace. However, in Christ, we all have a father who imparts a legacy to us, an image into which we are to grow, and a family of which we have become a part. Family identity shapes us far more than we realize. It, it does so in large part by the shaping how we imagine ourselves and the world that we live in. From an earthly perspective, my family story influenced me positively, at least for the most part. My grandfather in particular had a tremendous influence on who I've become as a person. Others come from broken homes, alcoholic fathers or mothers, abusive, narcissistic parents. All families, by the way, are broken. Yours, mine, everybody else's, they're all broken. Some are just more broken than others. We often imagine them better than they are. Sometimes we imagine them worse than they were. As sons of Adam, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, just a little bit after where we read, we all come into this world as sons of disobedience. The NIV leaves out the word sons, it just calls them those who are disobedient, but that obscures its connection to the theme of adoption in this letter, which we're going to be talking about today. You see, adoption is the controlling theme or metaphor of the book of Ephesians. If you want to understand the book of Ephesians, you have to look through the lens of adoption to understand that letter. Adoption is far more than one of just many things in a list in verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1 that we read. It is the central thing. Adoption is not equal in uh, this list to blessing, election, predestination, forgiveness of sins, redemption, love, grace, God's good pleasure and will, as if it's some sort of systematic theology. No, adoption is the thing that the chapter, the, the whole thing is about. It's the controlling metaphor. Those things that are listed alongside it either make adoption possible or flow out of that adoption. And then the rest of the letter extrapolates the meaning of <coughs> this adoption. I mean, it's why sometimes word studies don't sufficiently help us understand our Bibles. I mean, word studies have their place and they can be helpful. But if you were to look up the word adoption, you would find one time it's mentioned in the book of Ephesians. And in fact, only five times in the entire New Testament. And you might think, well, it's not all that important of a theme. <laughs> well, no, it's crucial in understanding Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians. And in Ephesians, though, it's actually the words used once from that word, then everything else in the letter makes sense. And so you might not find the word everywhere, but you find the concept throughout and, and what it has accomplished. But note, for instance, following this text that we read, you have a prayer at the end of chapter 1 that asks the glorious Father that the church would know the riches of His inheritance for us, an inheritance which we only have because we have been adopted. Chapter 2 speaks about discord between siblings. In that case, it was Jew and Gentile who weren't getting along well, which must no longer be the case because Gentiles are now also members of God's household through Christ. How? Adoption, right? The prayer of chapter 3 calls on the Father from, and it literally reads, from whom all fatherhood in heaven and on earth takes its name. It's F.F. Bruce's translation, but it's quite literal. Now, how did the Father become our Father? Adoption. And the rest of the book outlines how we're to live as members of God's household. Because adoption comes with obligations. 
This whole letter is about adoption into God's family, where the father is center stage in the family. Adoption addresses our relationships with God and each other. It addresses our vertical relationship. It alters our vertical relationship to God. And it alters our horizontal relationships, those relationships with each other. We find identity in our father and our family, and they call us to something. So we're going to explore our adoption by God the Father under three headings. Um, adoption in Paul's world, adoption in the family, adoption in you. And we'll, we'll continue this theme as we look at further in the book of Ephesians, but that's what we're going to be covering today. Adoption in, and Paul's world. Adoption and the family, adoption and you. So let's begin under that first heading, adoption and Paul's world. Part of the difficulty in understanding this adoption metaphor is that we read it through our 21st century adoption lens. But we must read it through a first century adoption lens. There were two very different things. We, and, and when I say Paul's world, I, I, I say Paul's world because... I don't mean, strictly mean a Roman world, nor do I strictly mean a Jewish world. Now, there's, then there's the whole Greek world, the Hellenistic world, but I'm specifically looking at the Roman world and the Jewish world and how they combined in Paul as an individual and how they would have combined in the three places where he talks about adoption in the Roman church, the Ephesian church, and the Galatian church, all three places that functioned under Roman law and culture and not Greek law and culture, which was a significant difference, particularly when it came to the subject of adoption. It makes it interesting that he speaks of it to those contexts. When Paul writes about adoption, we need to consider his Jewish and Roman backgrounds and the audiences to whom he writes. They would be hearing it through that lens. They were well-versed in these things. So let's talk first about Roman concepts of adoption because... I think that's key to understanding what's going on here. Today, adoption has a different basis than it did in the ancient world. Adoption today is, is based on the child's need for a parent and the parent's desire or need for a child. Primarily, that's really what it's about. In the Roman world, adopting children was very uncommon. People generally did not adopt children because they would be likely enough to die before they reached maturity, and that would defeat the whole point of adoption. And we might say, what do you mean? Because in our mind, the point of adoption is to have kids. But that wasn't the point of adoption. The point of adoption was to have an heir. And to have an heir was a different thing than just to have a kid. Because you need to know if they're responsible and capable and all sorts of things. So you adopt them to do something. You adopt them to take on a function. You adopt them for a very strong purpose. And that was vital in Roman adoption. Childhood survival rates were far too low for their purposes <clears throat> of adoption. What not unheard of is just not common at all. So what was their purpose of adoption? What benefits would the adopted gain by being adopted if they're already fully adults and capable of living on their own? Well, in our very independent world, it's hard to conceive of what that would be because we think of nuclear families. That's really, you know, we, we, we have a, an extended family, but we kind of tend to really get as separated from that as we can, as quick as we can, down to this small nuclear family, a concept they would never would have 
conceived of. In fact, until the father died that was at the head of the family, everybody else came under the rule and authority of that father. And when he died, then the next in line, the heir, would take on that responsibility for the household. They thought in terms of households. And households weren't just relatives. Households were carrying on responsibilities for everybody in the household, including the servants and and those that were were hired and and, and slaves and so forth. There was a broader understanding of what they were responsible for and where their care extended to. Adoption in the Roman world was a legally binding arrangement, which provided an heir who would receive an inheritance and the role of caring for the rest of the household. It resulted practically... In inclusion into a new household with all of its privileges and responsibilities, it ended the adoptee's relation to his former family, along with those responsibilities and privileges, and began a whole new identity. Soren Kierkegaard told a parable that might help us grasp what it means to be adopted by God as our Father. Now, it's not a a one-to-one to adoption, but I think it's helpful. He imagines a day laborer, and the mightiest emperor that ever lived. The day laborer, <coughs> excuse me, never imagined the emperor knew he existed or, and, and would have considered it a privilege if just perchance in his lifetime he would coincidentally have an opportunity to see the emperor. Maybe he would be coming through in a parade and he would see him. That would be the most he could ever hope for. But imagine one day the emperor sins for the poor man, the laborer, informing him that he wished to have him for his son-in-law. The laborer would be quite puzzled, possibly even shamefaced, embarrassed, for it would seem strange, maybe even crazy, to think that this is even possible. He would dare not mention this message to anyone he knows, lest they think him a fool for believing such foolishness. And if it is true that the message is from the emperor, then surely it is in order to make a fool of the man himself. Because it would be so inconceivable to him. But if it were true, it would absolutely change everything about this man in his life and his identity. Kierkegaard used this as a parable of faith. Given the audacious claims of the Christian faith, it takes real courage to believe the gospel. And while this little parable isn't a one-to-one with adoption, it gets us closer to the concept than we might realize. The God of the universe, the ultimate Father, the Father of all fathers in love has adopted us. Think of it. It's audacious. In Christ, we have been chosen from before the creation of the world to be God's sons, His people. Now, that's the Roman background that feeds into that idea, but then you've got the Jewish background. Adoption was central in Paul's understanding of his own identity. In Romans 9.3, we get a hint at this because he writes this. I'm sorry, Romans Romans 9, verses 3 through 5. He says, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of of Israel. Listen to what he says next. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Literally the word is theirs is the adoption. But <clears throat> we don't fully get that because the word adoption in the Greek language 
is a, it's a, etymologically, it's just a compound word that literally, if you take the two words apart, it's to be placed into sonship or appointed or ordained into sonship. So that's what adoption means. It's you're, you're, you're taken and you're placed in the function and role and legally binding arrangement that you're now the son. Okay? And so that's adoption. That's what the, the word transparently meant. So adoption to sonship is a good translation, even if it's only one word, just because adoption itself doesn't carry the full meaning for us. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all forever praised. Amen. So, <clears throat> Paul understood that Israel was chosen by God and adopted to be a son. Now, that's not ever directly stated in the Old Testament. It is stated that he chose them not due to any merit of their own. It is stated that they are his son, and clearly that had to be by adoption. The conclusion was drawn, hence he says, there's the adoption of sons. It's the only other way it could have been, is that they were adopted by God. The Lord could tell Moses to tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I'll kill your firstborn son. You take mine, I'll take yours. Tit for tat. So when Paul says to the Ephesian church, again, let's back out of our context, both our individualistic and our concepts of adoption, and let's go over into Paul's world and see what he's saying in Ephesians when he says this, and what his audience, who was well-versed in the Old Testament, very well-versed in the Old Testament, <clears throat> and, 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 and of course all the concepts and culture around adoption. So when he says to the Ephesian church, for he, God, chose us in him, Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship. Again, everything I said a minute ago about adoption. Through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Paul is saying that what was once the province of Israel as the people of God is now the province of the church. What was once true of Israel, God chose them and adopted them, is now true of you, Gentiles and Jews, mongrel group of people who believe in Jesus Christ. Now, if that doesn't capture your mind, just keep thinking on it as you think through your Bible and your theology, and it will really capture your mind it's huge that just he's saying that just as god had chosen israel not for any merit in them and predestined them to be his son for the purpose of blessing the world so too it has been his good pleasure and will to adopt the church those who are in christ jesus to that same role now hold that thought because i'm going to get back to it in a minute but now i want to touch on two words that i think are crucially important at the end of verse 4, but it's the beginning of the sentence that's verse 5, in love. It's one of those unfortunate verse breaks. <clears throat> in love, he tells us, he predestined us for adoption. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Well, it is likely, in most adoptions in the Roman world, love or affection were involved. It was certainly not the kind of love we typically associate with Adoption, you know, it's not this sort of cute, cuddly, oh, I can't wait to protect you and 
care for you and guard you. I mean, no, it was, it, it was a mature love, like, I have deep respect for you, I want you to be my heir, you're, I mean, there, there are so many things about that that would be there, okay, very likely, it's not really, it's not really required to have love or affection in, that, in their world when it comes to adoption. We assume adoption automatically means love, but they would not have assumed that it automatically meant love, which then makes it all the more meaningful when Paul says, in love, he predestined us for adoption. Through Jesus Christ. He wants to make sure that we know that this was no mere practical matter on God's part. I practically need something, and functionally I need them, and so therefore I'm going... No. It was because of love. His motive was love. Which he then goes on to express as, in accordance with his good pleasure and will. He's freely given us in the one he loves. I mean, there's love all over this, desire all over this. He wants to make sure that we know that it wasn't utilitarian. It, it wasn't, as some suggest, that God chose the church because plan A failed when the Jews slipped up and crucified Jesus. No, the church is not plan B. Ryan mentioned that last week. It's crucial that we get that. The church is not plan B. There's a whole bunch of theology and a bunch of movies that have been made to go along with it that are rooted in the idea that the church is plan B and that if God's going to get back to what His real purpose in the world is, He's got to get the church out of the way. Which is to say we don't even understand our adoption. It's vital that we understand our adoption. In love, He predestined the church for adoption. You, plural. All the the pronouns, by the way, are plural in this first chapter. There's a reason for that. It's crucial in Ephesians 1 to understand the plurality of what's going on in this case. You see, he not only chose this mongrel group that we call the church to be adopted, he not only chose it in love, he chose it before the foundation of the world, which means it's plan A. That, that what God is doing in the world through the church is what he intended to do from the very beginning. It wasn't because Israel messed up. That was a picture looking forward to. <clears throat> Both the fact that God lovingly chose to adopt the church, Jew and Gentile combined, and that he did so before the creation of the world, are very significant things, especially for Gentile believers who would have felt very much like second-class citizens of the kingdom. Not so, says Paul. I don't know about you, but there are people today that want to make us Gentiles feel like we're second-class citizens of the kingdom. Now, when I say that we're not second-class citizens, I'm not suggesting that we somehow deserve it any more as much as someone else deserves it. No. None of us deserved it. <laughs> There's the basis point, okay? None of us deserved it, point one. <laughs> but, oh, we are just as chosen from before the foundations of the world as anyone. Thanks be to God. It's God's plan A that we are a part of. Okay, so adoption and Paul, adoption and the family, our second heading here. <coughs> adoption is much more than a legal act making us God's children. 
I, I think because we think of adoption as a court proceeding, that a legal action takes place, that it's something about this now, now this legal act. But that's, again, in the, in, in the ancient world, it was a legal act, to be sure, but it didn't stop with a legal act. It wasn't merely a legal act. The act calls for a transformed way of life because we now belong to a people and have both privileges and responsibilities with those people. We are now sons and daughters of God with the security that God as Father provides and with the obligations to one another that being part of a family and, uh, in, involved in the Roman world. Once again, we can't read into it the family concept and our modern ideas of a very limited nuclear family. A Roman household was huge, included many more people. An adopted son inherited the authority to make decisions in the family as well as the obligations to provide for that family and to treat family members as family members. It's not just that we've been adopted. We've been adopted and that has continuing meaning in our lives every day. Adoption begins as a legal act but ends with transformed lives in the household of God. Or we might even say, rather than ends, continues with transformed lives in the household of God. In other words, adoption isn't just a one-and-done kind of thing. Adoption is a truth that then has ramifications for everything we do. Everything we do. <clears throat> There's another reason we need the message of adoption today. <clears throat> in the late 3rd century... Um, long before the formal Catholic Church, as we think of it today, existed, Cyprian, in response to circumstances at that time, declared, <clears throat> quote, Outside the church there is no salvation. Now that spurred some debate, to be sure. And a healthy debate, because I think there's good debate to be had. But, but I think we need the message of adoption today more than ever, because we've arrived at a time in which people no longer ask, is there any salvation apart from the church? They just assume an answer. Of course there is. And think it's a funny question. There's no longer a debate. If someone is saying that one is saved by being a member of a church, then we might rightly answer the question, yes, there is salvation apart from the church. On the other hand, wouldn't it be absurd to ask, can I be adopted but not be a part of the family? Huh? How would that work exactly? We're hardwired for belonging to a family. A household that is bigger than our nuclear family. Many don't want the church because they don't understand our desperate need for community. Nor do they understand that being a part of the family is not an optional extra when adopted into it. It's part of the package. Kyle Snodgrass states in uh, the obvious in his commentary on Ephesians, he says, Ephesians is relentlessly relational. Well, that's true. Since adoption is the controlling theme of Ephesians, it is necessarily relational. It is indeed relentlessly relational. In fact, it's true that Christianity is relentlessly relational. It's relentlessly relational. It's the nature of it. The book of Ephesians goes on to speak of us as heirs, as formerly children of disobedience. It speaks of us as members of God's household and instructs us in how we are to live in relationship to each other. The prayer of chapter 3 <clears throat> that, that, that speaks 
I bow before the Father from whom all fatherhood in heaven and on earth derives its name. It flows into the beginning of chapter 4, which talks about the unity of the body, the one body, one Father, and so forth, in the beginning of chapter 4. Why? Because it's important that it's a unified family. Then when Paul takes up the idea of putting off our old identity and putting on our new identity, this identity change occurred because of adoption. In other words, we are now to live in our new family identity. It makes sense that Paul would use the format of a Roman household codes in chapters 5 and 6, since he's now speaking about the new household code of God's family. Something they were familiar with, he now transforms. Belonging was essential to survival in the Roman world. But the poor who had nothing to offer were excluded from belonging to anything that would help them. They were not able to belong to the associations. They could not afford the dues. But the church came along and equalized that. No fees were required. See, the church was different than everywhere else. No one could be excluded from the church's care because they couldn't pay dues since there were no official dues. But anyone, rich included, could be excluded if they did not embrace the family lifestyle. Membership was connected to faithfulness, not money. Membership was connected to faithfulness, not money. Because we are now a part of God's family, there is no room for our petty divisions. We are united by our union in Christ, but we are are not united by our agreement on every doctrine that we hold dear. So in chapter 4, he spends a lot of time dealing with divisions and how we need to be unified in those things. To be in Christ requires a level of agreement on major theological issues, in particular, who is it that we're in, who is Christ. But it does not require agreement on secondary theological issues. Indeed, the church may well be at its healthiest when its members make room for people who view the secondary issues differently. We don't choose our family. We're born into it. The fact that we are adopted, apart from any merit of our own, strips away any room for pride. That leads to division. And this leads to our third heading, our final heading, adoption and you. (coughs) Many have suggested that we live in an age of anxiety. The age of anxiety, in fact. A 2019 article titled Age of Anxiety begins, quote, America seems to be in a full-blown panic attack. And that was before the pandemic. Yeah, just worth noting. <laughs> French sociologist Alan Ehrenberg, in his book, The Weariness, The Weariness of the Self, though he points to many causes, ultimately suggests that the modern pandemic of depression, which despite increased treatment is rapidly rising, has its roots in the Western history of self-awareness. That self-awareness, he suggests, the history shows, produced an epidemic of melancholia, or we would say melancholy, but that's a diagnosis, melancholia, which in turn grew into depression when the doctrine of the autonomous individual was combined with it. The idea that I can do, uh, indeed I must do it myself. I must become my own man. I must do everything myself. I must be self-sufficient. When that is compounded with our self-awareness, that's when melancholy turns into depression. The gospel offers good news. 
The good news is that you can't do it yourself. You don't have to. You've been adopted into a family. You've been adopted into a family. A difference between 21st, the, the 21st century audience and the 1st century audience to whom Paul wrote this letter we call Ephesians is that they felt their need to belong and knew what it was. We too feel our need to belong but instinctually have no idea what it is. We, we feel the anxiety of needing to belong but we can't identify that it's a need to belong. We just feel it as anxiety and we just can't do enough and we're not sufficient enough and because we're taught to be so individualistic it would never genuinely just cross our mind that we need to belong to something. <laughs> we, need to, we need to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. We feel the anxiety that results from our isolated lives even if we don't know why we're feeling that anxiety. We're hardwired for belonging to a household and having a good father. This is why understanding our adoption by the Father into His family is such an important theme for us to understand. It is something we desperately need, but are rarely consciously aware of. Rankin Wilborn, in his book on union with Christ, writes, quote, We may know what God has saved us from, but we have lost sight of what God has saved us for. We know what God saved us from, but what has He saved us for? He saved us to be a part of His household, His family, to be His heir, that we, the church, might care for the rest of the household, as it were. Remember, the household included much more than immediate family. It's kingdom in another metaphor. It will take our imaginations <coughs> to live into the reality of being family. Remember, we looked at a couple of weeks ago in Hebrews 13, the very beginning of Hebrews 13, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Now again, that takes imagination. That takes imagination. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Not because it isn't true. It takes imagination because it is true. But we don't naturally feel that way. Maybe what Albert Einstein said is applicable here. Quote, imagination is more important than knowledge. <laughs> See, to know that we are adopted into God's household as His heirs may be important, but that alone changes little. We must imagine the new kind of life that this means for us and then begin to live in it. J. Todd Billings, in his book, Union with Christ, puts it this way. <clears throat> the gospel does not so much offer a low-cost eternal life insurance as it gives the tremendous privilege of learning to be, the children, to be children of the king, living into our new identity in the, a kingdom that is coming forth to us from the future. <clears throat> the gospel does not so much offer low-cost eternal life insurance. We, we've, we've truncated the gospel into that kind of a message. I sometimes refer to it as a ticket to heaven, but low-cost eternal life insurance, the same thing. Rather, it gives us the tremendous privilege of learning to be children of the King, living into our new identity in a kingdom that is coming forth to us from the future. Eternity in the present. Your kingdom come. Manifest itself among us on earth as it is in heaven. Adoption addresses our relationships with God and each other. It alters both our vertical relationship and our horizontal relationships. We now have a new father and a new family. We have new siblings, if you will. 
in Judaism, since Israel was chosen by God and adopted, then they understood that made all of them his sons and daughters, logically. Likewise, if we've been chosen in Christ from before the foundations of the world, guess what? We are his chosen sons and daughters. We have to begin to imagine this new reality in order to live into it. Trevor Burke, in his exploration of the theme of adoption in Scripture, notes that in Ephesians, quote, the believer is vitally connected and united by faith to others within the household of believers and therefore has a responsibility to be concerned for their welfare and to look out for the needs of their own kith and kin, to use some old language. I suggested earlier that we are hardwired for community, for family, for a household. We're hardwired for it. I read these two different stories over a period of a few months. I ran onto one, then I ran into the other, and I thought, man, there's a connection there. Joseph Stalin, he came up with a brilliant idea for productivity. Beginning on September 30th, 1929, instead of a six-day work week with everyone off on Sunday, they began that day a five-day staggered work week. Everybody had to have a calendar, and it was color-coded as to what color they were, if they're red, blue, green, yellow. They had different five-day work days. It allowed the factories to remain open at all times. It had the additional benefit of preventing people from worshiping together on Sunday since 80% of the workforce would be working on any given day. Even though they tweaked it after three years, it was completely scrapped as a massive failure after 11 years. The whole nation grumbled that there was no point in having a day off since they had to spend it by themselves. Days off without relationships were torturous to them. We're hardwired for a household, for community, for relationships. Now, you don't need the state to create such a stupid problem like that. Our culture is driving toward transience, moving people around, so that the only relationships they have are at work. The church must display a counter story to that. A different life than that. In 2013, this is the second story. (coughs) In 2013, researchers in Sweden did extensive research on the Swedes' vacation patterns and use of antidepressants. What an odd thing, right? But use of antidepressants and their vacation patterns. Let's see if there's a correlation. The the first finding that they had was to be expected. We, We would assume it, I think, without having to do any research. And that is this. The use of antidepressants went down dramatically when people were on vacation. Duh. I mean, you know, hello. (laughs) That one's easy, right? However, the second finding was revelatory. Antidepressant use fell by a significantly greater degree in proportion to how much of the population of Sweden was on vacation at the same time. In other words, the need for antidepressants decreased at a much greater rate when increasing numbers of people had vacations at the same time. Why? Because they had more relationship and community going on at the same time. We are hardwired for community. See, the conclusion was not that that not just having time off, but having time off with others to whom we can connect with made a Massive difference. 
as adopted members of God's household, the God who declared, let my people go that they may celebrate in worshiping me in the wilderness, calls us to live joined together and built together as a family, an eternal family that worships him in the wilderness in which we dwell. Amen? Well, in closing, just a couple of (coughs) quick thoughts, or maybe important thoughts. We must, as the author of Hebrews put it, keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. Doing life together as people is transformative. Doing life together as the people of God for our Father's purpose is exponentially transformative. I mean, we just demonstrated that it just everyday life, any, anybody, you don't even have to be a believer that it makes a difference. How much more if it's as a part of God's family, the royal family? Our Sunday gatherings are a bodily way of declaring that we belong to a family under the Father who has blessed us with every blessing that He has. It is a vertical expression of the family to the Father. It is part of gospel formation. We come together. We eat at one table. We are demonstrating that that we are one people. We are one family. It has to go beyond that. That's, That's a visual, symbolic way that we can engage with bodily, that we can actually participate in physically. We eat at the table. And that helps train our thinking about what's important. But then we leave. If if that's true, then we go live as if that's true. We have to begin to imagine that reality. Amen? Community groups are a bit like family gatherings. From a human perspective, they're just not spectacular. If we're just honest enough to admit that, I think that would be a good first step. They're just not that spectacular. Don't get me wrong, I love them, but not because they have a bunch of sizzle. (laughs) If they do, it's usually something burning. They're, They're rather plain. They're a family gathering, like a traditional dinner together, which accomplishes so much more than feeding the family. So too they are a structure whereby we begin to get to know one another in a deeper less superficial way. But think of the family meal. If you, if you look at a family meal individually, it wouldn't reveal any great transformation that takes place in anyone in that family. They got fed would be about the only obvious thing. It, it's only seen if you look at the long game. Eating at the table together over a period of 18 years That makes a difference. But a single event, not so much. There's no substitute for time together. And to be a family takes time. It just takes time. Ah, I'm so busy. Well, okay, you be busy. And the Russian people were busy for those 11 years. But it takes time. Time together when viewed properly is formative. It contributes to our gospel formation. Being adopted into God's family is not just wonderful news for single people. It is wonderful news for single people. And I'm so glad we have that wonderful news for single people. But the reality is, I, who have been married for 42 years, have four children, eight grandchildren, 
I desperately need the church, the family, the, to be adopted into a true family. Because one, my family's broken. Sorry, kids, but, but we are. You know that more than I do. We need the eternal family. Donna and I, as our kids were growing up, we, we understood and talked about the fact that the most important thing we could do for our kids would be to plug them into the eternal family. Because, well, one, just kind of plainly seen, one day this family will be gone. I will be, <coughs> be gone. And two, before that happens, they'll be glad to be out of the house. But if we don't plug them into the eternal family, we've accomplished nothing. But if we do, then the rest of it doesn't matter. We've done what matters. Our adoption into the family. We all need the eternal family. Everything else is penultimate. That is ultimate. Like the poor day laborer who was made the emperor's son-in-law... And that came with an inheritance, but it also came with responsibilities. His life would change, not just by what he received, but by how he lived and what he did. And no matter who we are, we've been given responsibilities for our siblings in God's household. This week, I just want to put on your plate, as it were, to ask yourself the question, how do I live in light of my adoption into the royal family, into God's royal family? What privileges does that give me? What responsibilities does it carry? Let's do life living through that lens. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We were born into this world as sons of disobedience. We got that from our parents and our father, and we passed it on to our children. But in Christ, you have chosen us to be adopted as your sons. What a glorious truth that is. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.